Daniel chapter 11. This is the ESV translation I'm reading because I was reading out the authorised version and um, it's quite difficult to read, never mind understand. So we're going to the ESV tonight and let's read from verse number 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these." Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, that she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up unto her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times." And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south that shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfil the vision, but they shall fail. And then down to verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people." Without warning, he shall come into the richest part of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's father shall have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Verse number 25. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come out against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. And shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And then verse number 35. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end. 
for it still awaits the appointed time. Now that's a reading. It's not an easy reading. It is a wee bit obscure when you just read it as I've done without context and without also a bit of history knowledge. I love history, so I quite enjoyed reading round about this. Um, but the history that we can look back on, which is prophesied by Daniel, that is, he's looking forward. We can look in the history books backward and see the fulfilment of these things in quite some detail. Um, this is actually one of the most extensive sections of biblical prophecy which has been fulfilled to this point in history. And so up until our day, this section and the detail of it is probably the most detailed and the most um, checkable, if you like. You can actually check up on this and see if Daniel's prophecy was correct, if it was accurate or not, because it's referring to things which have already taken place in history now. And so Daniel's looking forward we can look back. Now, up until this point in Daniel, most of the prophecies have been fairly general. And then you get extremely specific here and detailed. One writer said this, one of the ways that fortune tellers are different from biblical prophets is this, that they're able to get people to believe them by making general statements that can be fulfilled and interpreted in different ways. For example, if someone prophesies or says, telling someone's fortune or whatever, that it's going to be a hard winter, that usually can be applied to weather, it can be applied to health, it can be applied to money, it can be applied to relationships, it can be applied across the board. And so that's the way these things are generally said. But when you come to this, the detail is so much that it's not general at all. It is um, detailing the movement of armies, battles that took place, kingdoms that rose and fell, and can actually be checked in terms of the detail. And so, because of the detail, you'll find this, that scholars believe that this wasn't written by Daniel at all. They believe that actually this was written in the second century, after the time of Christ. And they believe, scholars who are sceptical about the Bible, that it would be impossible for Daniel to write this, such as the accuracy and detail contained in it. They're saying it's impossible to write this before it happened because it happened in such detail. However, if you believe the Bible to be the word of God, then instead of that causing scepticism, it's rather one of the great affirmations, one of the great confirmations as to the fact that it is the word of God because it was written by Daniel and it did look forward and it was fulfilled and it can be checked and it all happened as Daniel had revealed to him. You see, the Bible teaches us this, and this is a wee digression, that it is only God that knows the future. The future is not revealed to men. It's only known as God reveals it to men. And this is something that sets God apart, one of the many things, but sets God apart from any other person. He knows the future, and he can reveal the future. For example... So when you go to Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, it says this, Remember the former things long past, this is God speaking, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, in this way, declaring the end from the beginning. God says, I'm unique. I can declare the end from the beginning. No one else can do that. 
and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So God says, I am different because I know what's going to happen in the future and I can say what's going to happen in the future. Beyond that, when you come to Isaiah 44, the ability of God to foretell the future is claimed as one of the great tests that his word is the word of God. So it's not just the character of God, it's actually the veracity of his word that's at stake, the Bible. And so it's one of the great tests, prophecy is one of the great tests of the Bible as being what it says it is, God's word. So in Isaiah 44, verse 6 to verse 8 says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them declare to me the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock I know of none? And God says, here it is. I've declared it, the fact I know, the fact I can foretell, and the fact that I've done that and it's written down is a verifiable demonstration of the character of God and his word. And God in Isaiah 41 also, he rebukes the idols. And in this point that the idols cannot do this. So he says this, present your case, verse um, 21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob says, let them bring forth and declare to us what's going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account and your works amount to nothing. So God challenges the idols and says, prove the fact that you're divine. Show us the evidence. And there is none. And so it's the same today. You can actually go to the Bible and you can verify God's prophetic word. And it demonstrates the character of God. And it demonstrates the character of his word. And it's a great affirmation of it. And that's one of the things that Daniel 11 does for us. Actually, one of the great tests of a prophet in the Old Testament, according to Deuteronomy chapter 18, was this. That if the prophet said things and it didn't happen, then he was declared not to be a prophet and he was to be put to death. Because a prophet leading the people of God was such a significant role to fulfill. So then we come to this. And in this section, you have prophecies given to Daniel, all about the children of Israel, of which Daniel was a part, and all about the immediate future of that people. Now remember the context. Daniel has been taken into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. You remember that he was brought up in Babylon and he was very successful in the civil service there and in the times of Nebuchadnezzar he rose up within that system, that great Babylonish empire and then Babylon was overtaken by the empire of the Medes and the Persians and he again stays at the kind of hierarchy of that civil service. So Daniel is an Israelite, he's far from home, 
And what happens is this, he's given visions about his people, about the restoration out of captivity back to the land of Israel, about the future and about a coming Messiah who's going to save them and great big world events involving his people. Now in this passage, let me divide up as follows. In the first four verses, he's going to speak to us about two nations. Number one, Medo-Persia, and number two, Greece. Now, as we've come through Daniel, we've come across these empires already. And then in verse 5 down to verse 20, he'll speak about the Egyptian empire and the Syrian empire, the king of the north and the king of the south. I said again, it's like something out of something like Game of Thrones or something, the king of the north and the king of the south. But actually... This is the real thing. So when he speaks about the king of the north, it's Syria. When he speaks about the king of the south, it's the Ptolemy um, Empire, the Egyptian Empire of its day. And in verse 5 down to verse 20, he speaks about the war that waged between these two kings over a long period of time, about 175 years, over, obviously not the same, same kings, but over these kingdoms and how Israel geographically is in the middle, Syria up there, Egypt down there, and they're kind of fighting each other, and Israel's caught up in it. That's from verse 5 down to verse 20. And with all Bible prophecy, you don't get a whole indication of what every nation in the world is doing at the time. You don't hear about nations that are far away, I mean, there's no word of the Mongol um, Empire that existed. There's no word of the great Chinese empires that existed or the great African Zulu nations or, or any of these empires that existed, which were mighty world empires. There's no word of them because they've got no involvement in God's fulfillment of his purposes for his people Israel. There's no direct connection, therefore they're not involved in biblical prophecy. That's why you don't hear about them. It's not that the Bible denies their existence, or it's not that the Bible, uh, that God is unaware of their existence, but as God reveals his purpose, as God reveals his prophetic um, outcomes in the world, it's all to do with how people are connected with Israel. His special people. And that's really important to bear in mind. So you've got Medo-Persia and Greece, you've got Egypt and Syria. And that period from verse 1 down to verse 20 covers a total period of about 350 years. Here's the background. We're not going to go into all the detail of this because, to be honest with you, it can get, unless you're a complete history geek, it can get really tedious to talk about all sorts of battles and that, that really have no um, connection to us in that sense uh, and, and value in that sense of us learning all the detail of all these battles that took place. They're referenced here. We'll reference them and see how they connect into the passage. Here's the background. Here's the big picture. So Israel um, um, are taking God's people in the land of Israel and they've been disobedient to God over a whole long period of time. And so God allows Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonish Empire to come and to take them and conquer them and to take them into captivity, into slavery in Babylon. And the land of Israel is waste. And it's occupied by people, but not as a nation. It's just a wasteland, really. Jeremiah the prophet had prophesied that this was going to happen before it did. And he wrote about it in the Bible. And one day, Daniel is in Babylon. And we learned about this, I think, the last time. And he's reading Jeremiah's prophecy. 
So he's got the scroll of Jeremiah and he's in Babylon and he's reading through this and he comes across something that says that this captivity of which he was actually experiencing is to last for 70 years. And he's doing his sums and he's worked out that the 70 years has come to an end. It's time for God to take his people out of Babylon and put them back into the land, if Jeremiah's prophecy is correct. And Daniel fully expects that God will do something. So he goes to prayer, we've seen that, and he's in sackcloth and ashes, and he prays for the fulfillment of all these things, and he's perplexed about the whole thing, he doesn't see the whole picture, but God answers his prayers, and there is a remnant, a small number, about 40,000 or so, of the people of Israel go from Babylon back into Israel. Daniel's not one of them, but they go back. And he fully expected that God would restore Israel and all that, and it didn't happen. They went back and it was tough for them. And Daniel was disappointed and he was perplexed. And we saw that last time in chapter 10. And he's given himself to fasting and he's praying about it and he can't work out what's going on. Why were the people of Israel back in the land of Israel not flourishing? Why were they being persecuted? Why were they having it so hard? And he's in prayer at the beginning of chapter 10. And God answers his prayer. And you remember the whole thing about the angel being sent and getting delayed and the whole um, angelic um, conflict that was going on that wasn't seen by Daniel that you read about in chapter 10. And Daniel is a vision of the Son of God and an angel comes and brings the answer and chapter 11 is the answer. Why is it that after 70 years Israel, the remnant will come back and things are tough and hard? Why have they not prospered as a nation? And Daniel's going to get the big picture revealed to him about what's going to happen in the immediate future to that nation and what's going to happen in the far-off future. And that's chapter 11 into chapter 12. And that's why it's verifiable. That's why you can test it against history, secular history, and see that it actually matches up in every minute detail to what the historians know about the history of Israel. So, verse 1 to 4, we have Medo-Persia and Greece. Now, we've already learned in Daniel that there are four great empires that are connected to Israel and in Bible prophecy. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. We've come across these four. In Daniel chapter 8, in that vision, it narrows to focus on two, Medo-Persia and Greece. And that's the two that we have here in verses 1 down to verse number so let's just look at this a wee bit of detail in the first four verses and see what he says. So, verse number one is a hinge verse that connects chapter 10 with chapter 11. It hinges. And the idea is just this, that the angel who's communicating all of this to Daniel in chapter 10 informs him that he's been active in this whole thing for two years. He says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, I stood up to strengthen and protect Darius the Mede in the first year of his reign. Now that's two years before the vision of chapter 10 through to chapter 12. It's the same year that a decree was issued allowing the Jews to return to Israel. 
and it appears that there was angelic involvement in the issuing of that decree. Gabriel was involved. Gabriel was strengthening. He's making it happen. And there is, a, there is the prince of Persia against him. And there's an angelic conflict going on that we learned about. And Gabriel wins, defeats, and the decree is issued. And the people of God start to go back. God's involved in the movement of all these nations. And then he says this in verse 2. So, now I will show you the truth. So as if he says, look, Daniel, now I'm going to give you a history lesson before it actually is history. So this is a prehistory lesson. And history secularly gives us the names for what Daniel has revealed to him in these verses. So that when you come to verse number two, it says this. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. That's where Daniel is. There's going to be three more kings. From the king, which is presently ruling. The king that we've read about in verse number one. Now, I went to the history books and, well, Googled it actually, and um, PDFs. And, and read all about this stuff. I can't even pronounce the names, to be honest with you. The names are very difficult. I'm going to have a go. So, um, Cambyses, Smerdis, and Darius I. That was the three kings. So there's three of these kings, and history tells us, right enough, there were three more kings. That's what happened. And then a fourth shall arise, it says, who shall be far richer than all of them. Now, that's Xerxes. Now, if you have ever watched or read about the whole battle that took place when Xerxes brought his million-strong army into Greece, do you remember the Spartans? And they fought against Xerxes, and they defeated him at that, uh, the pass and all the rest of it. That's all true, and that's all involving that fourth king. And so what happened was this, the history books tell us that Xerxes came in and he was desperate to conquer Greece. That was a collaboration of nation states at that time. So you had Sparta, you had Athens, you had Corinth, you had all these states and they weren't one entity. Um, Alexander the Great's father tried to make them an entity, he didn't manage it. But the Xerxes army came in to conquer that area of the world. And they came in with a scorched earth policy, which is they literally destroyed the land that they conquered. And the consequence of that was that there was a deep-seated, rooted hatred of the Persians as a consequence of Xerxes' invasion. Now, Xerxes was held by the 300 Spartans. They were all killed, and they eventually came through the pass. But it led to a naval battle and the great navy of Persia was defeated. And when their navy was defeated, Xerxes took cold feet and he withdrew back into Persia. He left a legacy of hatred of the Persians. The consequence of that, and by the way, that's, that's Ahasuerus. Xerxes is the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. That's how he linked that in. So Xerxes goes back to Babylon and what happens is this, you fit the book of Esther into his return. And you see that there were things happening in Babylon 
with regard to God's people as well when Ahasuerus goes back. And so God uses um, the kings that you, you read about here and he uses them to get the Persians to turn back. Well, the, the Greeks. And what happens is then in verse number three, we're introduced to a mighty king who arose. Now, there's a 150-year gap between verse 2 and verse 3. So paint the picture. Persians have invaded Greece. They've been kicked out of Greece. There's this simmering discontent and hatred against the Persians that just grows and grows and grows. The consequence of that is that Alexander the Great comes to the fore. His father was Philip, a great warrior, but Alexander's going to be the greatest. And he comes to the fore as a young man, and his greatest hatred is against who? Against the Persians. And he raises an army, and we've already come against them in Daniel, that is characterised by speed. And history tells you this. They fought in a way that had never been done before. They went rapidly. And that 150-year gap between verse 2 and 3 tells us that this is, and all the scholars seem to agree, this is referring to Alexander the Great in verse 3, a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. That's exactly what happened. Alexander the Great conquered the then known world. He became famous. Historians have written volumes about him. He became the man who ruled as far as India and he established his kingdom like that. And he did exactly whatever, he was an absolute monarch. He answered to no one. He just did what he wanted. And he died at 33 years of age. You can actually draw parallels between the Lord Jesus and Alexander the Great. It's interesting. They both died at the same age. Alexander the Great died of disease and corruption and immorality and his successes destroyed him. In a short period of time. The Lord Jesus' death was brutal, but a completely different character and outcome. But Alexander the Great does that. Then in verse number four, it says this. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided. The kingdom of Greece under Alexander, as he united the Greek nation states, only lasted for as long as he lived. When he died age 33, his sons were murdered which was common in those days. You know, if you were the son of a king and you were young, the likelihood is that the person who took the throne would murder all the family of the king lest they were a threat to him. That's what happened all over the world in those days. <laughs> it was a dodgy thing. And so it says in verse number four that that very thing will happen. It says, As soon as he's arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, not to his posterity. His family, his sons didn't get it. History tells us they were murdered. No part of his vast empire went to his descendants, rather to his four main generals. So again, notice verse 4. It shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. So the Greek empire was divided into four different empires at that time. Now remember Daniel's hearing about this hundreds of years before it took place. And it did take place. Exactly as how he was, he had revealed to him. Now the historians put the names to the four divisions of his kingdom. Macedonia and Greece went to Cassander. 
I can't even say the second name. Another one took Thrace and portions of Asia Minor. Ptolemy, with a silent P, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. Ptolemy took Egypt and parts of Israel. And Seleucus, I think, took Syria and Mesopotamia. I wouldn't say his name again. He's the king of the north. Ptolemy is the king of the south. Now, history tells us that's what happened. That's what Daniel was told. His kingdom should be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. That's what happened. And God plucked Alexander's kingdom, divided it into four pieces, and gave it to whomsoever he would. And Alexander goes off the page of history, biblical history, is never heard of again. But here's an interesting thing. That's got a lot of woke up. Here's an interesting thing. When you read the Bible, remember this. The Bible isn't a history book, nor is it a science textbook. But the history of the Bible is accurate, and the science of the Bible is accurate. That is not their purpose, but however, the ref historical context and references are accurate. And when history is presented, when also science is presented, when philosophy is presented in the Bible, remember this, it is presented primarily from God's perspective, <coughs> not from man's perspective. And what I mean is this, when you read the secular historians for that period of recorded world history. The king of the north and the king of the south, the Syrian empire for what it was, and the Egyptian Ptolemy empire hardly warrant a mention. But Alexander the Great's empire has volumes written about it. He's the dominant personality in secular history. But in God's telling of it, he's not named and he has one verse. One verse. Because his connection to God's outworking of his redemptive purposes was very small. And so therefore, he merits little attention. One writer said this, Alexander may be very important for the history of Western civilization and culture, but he's not very important in comparison to these other men in the chapter with regard to the people of God and the plan of God and redemption. So Alexander, though he thought himself great, is actually small in the eyes of God. And it's good to have that perspective when we think about these things. So we come to verse 5 down to verse 20. Now I'm not going to go into the same detail from verse 5 down to verse 20. You can read about these things. There are books, commentaries and all the rest of it that give you, um, for example, uh, Jim Allen's book, which... Is the best book I've got in the book of commentary in the book of Daniel. Um, I think it's Rediscovering Daniel or something, Daniel. And when you go into that, there are, there are a couple of chapters that give you all the history of the outworking of these things. And you can read it all. Let me just give you a kind of overview of verse 5 down to verse 20. So you then have, how then, Daniel's hearing this, What's going to happen in the future? Okay, so you've got all this about what's going to happen with the Greek Empire and then the empires that follow. You've got all of that. What's then going to happen after that? Well, the information's given to him. This king of the north and the king of the south are actually going to have a direct impact upon the immediate future of Israel in the years leading up to the Messiah. 
the Egyptian kingdom and dynasty is going to fight with the Syrian kingdom and dynasty and they're going to fight for about 175 years off and on. Back and forward. Israel's caught in the middle. And so it's a wee bit like Belgium. If you know history, when you think about Belgium, which um, hasn't been a nation for that long actually, but when you think about Belgium, you discover this, that Belgium was involved in the First and Second World War, but they were only really involved in the First and Second World War because of where they are. So when Germany was coming to invade France, you must know this from history, and there's like a Schlieffen plan or whatever it's called, when they were coming to invade France, they went through Belgium. And that was the way to get from Germany to France, and therefore Belgium get caught up in both the First and Second World War. Well, it's actually the same with Israel and the wars between the Syrians and the Egyptians. They get caught up because the armies used to go up and down through them. They were the battlefields. Again, this is why, if you love history, you can go in and you can see the, great, the greatest battles that have changed world history were fought on the same piece of ground where the greatest battle yet to take place in history will be fought. The plains of Megiddo. And it's where Napoleon stood and said, this is the greatest battlefield in history. And so Israel is that crucial land space for these empires to come and to clash and to battle and to fight. And so that's what happens. One writer says they play political ping pong with the nation of Israel for 175 years until the evil Antichrist type figure called Antiochus Epiphanes comes in the scene. And that's the subject of verse 20 down to verse 45. Until then, ongoing civil war takes place between Egypt and Syria with Israel strategically and tragically caught in the middle. Now Daniel's hearing this. The nation of Israel, the land of Israel, is going to be a battlefield, Daniel. This is the future for your people. They're going to be conquered. They're going to be the scene of devastation. They're going to be a political pawn. They're going to, actually halfway through this section, rise up and try and fight their way out of this, and they're going to be destroyed as a consequence. This is history according to God's perspective. This is history according to that piece of ground that's so important to God in his redemptive purposes for the world. And so up they go, the king of the north is a go, and then he gets defeated. The king of the south, he is a go, and he gets defeated, and it goes back and forward, and then they try marrying, and you go through this. You know, there's these strategic alliances through marriage that fall to bits, and they're referenced over and over and over. Now you come to verse 20. And if you've got a fearful future, there's an alliteration. Richard always mocks me for my alliterations, no wonder. Well, these aren't mine, obviously, because they are alliterated, but a fearful future, and then you've got a fearful figure here in verse 20 to verse 35, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, if you know much about prophecy or you've heard about it, you may have heard about the, um, the whole idea of Antiochus Epiphanes and wondered who that is, and the whole thing about you know, Daniel's prophecy about the, the desolation and all that's going to take place in the temple in Jerusalem in the day yet to come. Well, this little section from verse 20 to verse 35 only covers a 12-year period. Not 175 years, 12 years. It's a very strong connection with Daniel chapter 8. And virtually all the, well, all the commentators I read agree that this figure 
that arises in verse number 20 is, in fact, this man, Antiochus IV. But he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He's the Antichrist, pictured. He's not the Antichrist, but he's a picture of it. The Lord Jesus is God manifest in flesh. He took upon himself the name of God manifest. He's a picture of a coming man, yet to appear in the world stage. Satan's man, the Antichrist, 666, all that in Revelation. This historical figure prefigured that coming Antichrist. He was a brutal individual. And it's interesting when you read, and I won't go into the detail of it, verse 20 down to verse 35, you read about what he did to the children, or what he did, prophesied by Daniel, but we read in history what he actually did to the nation of Israel. It was brutal. Which again is a picture of what's going to happen in a future day, in the time of tribulation, and the brutality that Israel experienced. You look at verse 21, I know this can be a wee bit sort of dry and tedious in this chapter, but if you look at verse 21, it says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person. That is this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is coming, arising out of the king. He arises up, I should say, and he acquires the throne by wheeling and dealing and murder. You do that in verse 21. And by flatteries, he takes it, it's not actually his by right, whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant, referring to Israel, and so on. And the point is just this. He comes in for these verses, verse whatever, 12 down to 15 and beyond, and he is uniquely brutal towards the children of Israel, historically. Let me give you one example of that, which is recorded in verse 29 down to verse 35. I'll just say it as history, and you can look at the detail yourself and find it matches up. And so there was a military campaign against the king of the south. He's the final king of the north. And there's a military campaign against the king of the south. And verse 21 to verse 35 details this. And he brings great territorial gains, a great success to begin with. And he presses southward and he actually makes some gains into Egypt. What then happened was he was halted at Alexandria. And he was halted there because there were representatives of a new empire who met him. The Roman Empire, who turned up in Egypt. And they stopped Antiochus Epiphanes, and they had a fleet with them. That, I think, is the ships of Kittim referred to in the text. And because of the Roman navy that was sitting in Alexandria, which was overwhelming force, he had to admit that he could go no further, and he turned around and he went back. And he took his armies north. And where do you think he went through? Israel. And because in his fury, his rage, it says in the text, he took it out in the nation of Israel, that fury. And he let his army loose on Israel. And so the Syrian army wreaked absolute devastation around about Jerusalem and in the city. 
The historians tell us that some of the Israelites apostatized and they went over to them. That's verse 33. They were seduced by his flattery. He massacred those who didn't. He banned circumcision, Sabbath observance, and the, he sought to destroy the Torah. He desecrated the temple that was in Jerusalem. He offered up a pig on the altar and dedicated the temple to Zeus. And many among the faithful Israelites were martyred at that time as they opposed him. Particularly the priests who sought to oppose him going into the sanctuary. And that all was done to foreshadow what will happen in the future day. And so you read Matthew 24 and you read Matthew 25. And you read references back to this prophecy that Daniel was given. And you discover this, that prophecy, not only given to Daniel referring to these events in Antiochus Epiphanes, but other prophecies that go way beyond that have yet to be fulfilled speak about a day when something very similar is going to happen. In the middle of the seven-year period of tribulation that the Bible speaks of yet to take place, when the man of sin, the Antichrist, makes his, uh, makes his covenant with Israel and there is peace and prosperity and all the rest of it during the first three and a half years, then he breaks the covenant. How does he break the covenant? He goes into the temple, which is yet to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. He goes into the temple and he sits in the holy place as God, Second Thessalonians 2. Seeking to be worshipped as God, just as Antiochus Epiphanes did, historically. It's like a foreshadowing, it's like a warning of what was going to happen in a future day. And it was a shocking historical account, you read it, what happened and what he did. In verse number 32, it says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know they are God shall stand firm and take action. And so they did. And they were martyred. You read about them as they opposed um, the Syrian army. Antiochus Epiphanes was an awful despot. And it was a horrible time in the life of God's people. And despite all of that, what do you learn when you're reading just this history? Well, we're learning just big basic things. Number one, God knew about it before it took place and revealed it. All the detail. Not just that God knew about it, but that God actually allowed it even to the harm of his own people. More than that, God actually had part, this was part and parcel of God's plan and purpose for his people. And although they thought they were marching to their own beat, all of these great kings, all of these great empires marched to God's time and not their time. They did things, and they didn't know it, in exact accordance with God's revealed prophetic calendar. So one writer said, even though it might have seemed that there were no restraints in Antiochus' resolve to destroy God's people. Although it may have seemed, especially those experiencing the terror from within, that Antiochus was a sovereign and could do whatever it was that he wished, his exploits were nonetheless limited and restrained by God. The same God who appoints the times and seasons. The same God who directs the wheels of history to their appointed end. The same God who refines and purifies his people. 
It's the same God. And verse 35, the last verse, just I'm going to think about this evening, says this, And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. God has a big purpose in view for his people, Israel. And he is actually... That's okay. That's Daniel 11. He is actually going to fulfill that purpose in a future day. So what do we learn about this? When you're faced with the intellectual um, pressure that says that actually, you know, the Bible is simplistic or it's full of fairy stories and all that kind of stuff and it's not. The Bible is rooted in history and verifiable history at that. You can test it. And if God's prophetic word was given in such detail and fulfilled in such detail according to the secular historians, it is a great encouragement for us to trust what is yet to be fulfilled in God's prophetic word. When you look back at what already has been fulfilled. We also learn that if God allowed his people to go through terrible times as they did, for their ultimate blessing and refinement, and for their ultimate elevation in his purpose, the same principle applies to us in our New Testament context. It's the same principle. And you get the whole book of Hebrews, and you get the whole idea that the fact that God's people went through hard and difficult times was not an indication that God had abandoned them. It was an indication that they were actually right in the current of God's will, right actually in the way that God was working out their ultimate good. It just didn't feel like it at the time. But it was when they saw the big picture. So I'm going to finish this with one more session next time. But really Daniel has this information given to us. He gives it given to him and he gives it to us. And I think he gives it to us to encourage us to look to God. To look to the big picture of his control and his purpose on world events. And when we look at world events today, they look as they probably looked in Daniel's day. Chaotic. Chaotic. And we wonder, what makes Putin do this? And folks speculate. And what makes Americans vote for Biden? And what makes the politics of our nation go as they do? It's perplexing. It doesn't sometimes seem to make sense. It seems to be world events seem to form no great purpose or plan but actually when you come to scripture you discover that they form exactly a purpose and plan and it's God's purpose and his plan which will be outworked let's just pray